Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, and listen as we have a conversation well, about the mundane. One thing that we can promise is that our conversation will hopefully be less than fascinating so that you can feel free to just drift off. Thank you for joining us. We hope you will listen and sleep. Follow us at Listen and Sleep or on the web at insomniaproject.com. I'm your host, Marco Timpano, and I have the delight of having Becca Barker on this episode of the Insomnia Project. And you may remember I had a conversation with her in Florida about sea slugs. We did a part one and it was so fascinating. We will have to do a part two. And she's currently working. Becca, welcome to the Insomnia Project. Hi, Marco. Thanks for having me again. This is an exciting episode because I am in a studio with Becca She's an animator, and she's currently animating. Is that right? Animator? Is that the correct term? Yeah. Um, well, I'm, um, I'm an independent uh, experimental animator, and so if you just say animator, that's fine as far as I'm concerned. But I guess um, people who are more familiar with like the um, film industry or the industry side of animation, an animator is a very specific job. Oh. Um, where you're the one actually moving the parts. Uh, what I'm doing is uh, I'm, I'm, I'm directing and creating and all the other, basically, you know, like any independent artist, I'm kind of doing all the jobs in one. I see. But you can call me an animator. Well, That's fine. It's, it's interesting because animators often used in other, in other senses of the word, in, other, in what I'm trying to say is mm -hmm. if you go to a particular, um, you know how they had these like old-timey, Mm -hmm. places and they'll have people dressed in period costumes mm -hmm. that sort of walk you through the different rooms of an old house and explain what went on there. They're also called animators yeah, because yeah. they animate the story, I believe, of the home or the historical facts. So it's interesting how a word like animator has many different sort of meanings and some people will take will take a certain, I don't want to say offense, but we'll, we'll take it to task what you call them. So you're, right. so you're an experimental 
Can you repeat that? What you were sorry? Oh, um, like what would you? What would your title on this project be? Oh, um, just the person who made it. Okay, fair enough. The creator, <laughs> the artist. The artist. So yeah. let's just call yeah. you an artist then, because you are doing. <laughs> let's just let's just let's, let's just say artist, because you I'm, are let's an just artist. Just put it out there. And like I'm an artist. And let's not apologize for it. And let's yeah. just uh, you'll you'll hear uh, Becca throughout this episode using various tools of her craft as she animates this particular and I'm watching her and it's very fascinating because it's prim primarily primarily black white and gray is what I'm seeing mm -hmm. and she's using graphite powder mm -hmm. for yeah. this particular project mm -hmm. it's my first time using graphite powder like in my life so it's pretty exciting why graphite powder not a graphite stick well um because pausing to take a frame there um, I'm, I'm using graphite powder because the particular animation technique I'm doing for this project is something where I'm manipulating one drawing over and over and over again. Um, so I'll, I'll have um, an image on the page and then I'll take a picture of it, which if you know anything about uh, classical animation or uh, old-timey animation, you might be saying to yourself, well, duh, that's how animation's done. You draw a picture and then you photograph it. And then you draw the next picture in the sequence and you photograph that. Um, well, that is happening here too, but instead of using a different piece of paper for each frame of the animation, I'm re-manipulating one piece of paper. So, so this piece of paper, which you've taped down, mm -hmm. is your canvas. Yes. And what you've done is you've taken this graphite powder and you're placing it on the page in different sort of shapes and moving it frame by frame. That's right. Or erasing the graphite powder where you want. Yeah. Would you call it negative space or, or white or um, I don't know what you'd call it, but yeah, I, I well, it's just part of the image. Okay. Yeah. It's. And, I mean, I like black and white because the only thing you really have to worry about is contrast when it's black and white versus color. Yeah, I don't have to deal with color color at all. Okay. Um, when I was a painting student at NASCAD a million years ago, um, I, I realized pretty quickly that color is something I'm not very good at. <laughs> See, and I would argue, because I have a painting of yours on our wall, oh. and it's a tester painting, so you painted it before you did. Yeah, it was like a sketch. Paint, a sketch yeah. with, uh, done in oil. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite paintings I've seen, I mean, and so crazy. I'm very fortunate to have it. So I think the world is losing out that you're not painting in color, but that said, <laughs> we have this beautiful animation that's happening. That's nice of you to say. Uh, right before my eyes, and uh, we should mention that you're in a gallery exhibition of media arts called The Frame is the Keyframe. Right, yes. That's, that's, um, this work has been commissioned for that show. And it's presented by the Toronto Animated Image Society, so that's why you're here and we're able to do this, because you live in Halifax, but you happen to be in Toronto creating this art. You can hear her erasing and taking frames as we go, and it's curated by Maddie Pillar, mm -hmm. and you're one of the seven artists that are going to be participating in this yeah. exhibition. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited to be part of this. Um, so we were talking about graphite powder. Yes. Why did you go for graphite powder? Okay, so the reason why I decided to try graphite powder for this project is because where I'm re-manipulating the uh, same piece of 
well, I'm actually using vellum right now, but the same piece of paper mm-hmm. uh, over and over and over again. Um, I knew I needed materials that could be up for that task of constant erasing, redrawing, erasing, redrawing. Um, and so the graphite powder is really useful because um, when I use it with this vellum, it doesn't really stick to the surface of the page very, very much. Whereas if you used a graphite stick, it would stick more? Yeah, it would be harder for me to erase off. I see. And I want, I want the graphite to be there on the page, of course, for each frame, but um, I also want to be able to erase it easily so that I can manipulate that image over and over again. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, so I need to erase it to change the picture. Um, and so the choice of materials is actually pretty pretty important how this is going to work and whether or not I can get it done in time and what the look of the piece is going to be. So I decided um, I've done the kind of animation I'm doing uh, where I change the image as I shoot the photos that then become animated is called under the camera and under the camera sort of technique of animation and um, your listeners if you're at all curious about um, seeing more examples of under the camera animation I highly recommend checking out some of Caroline Leaf's work from at the NFB from the 1970s Um, she um, did these really gorgeous phenomenal animations, short animations, and they're kind of, they're some of those iconic Canadian NFB animations from back in the day. Um, she has one called The Owl Who Married a Goose, and it's all sand. Oh. All of the images are made by sand, and what she did was she manipulated the sand over and over again under the camera as she was shooting it. So when you say under the camera... Mm-hmm. I'm just going to describe what I'm seeing here. So I see an SLR camera, or a, a fancier version, I guess, or a, a camera that anyone could possibly own, a Canon camera, and it's suspended right above the vellum paper that you're creating the art on. So it's kind of like an aerial view of what you're creating. Mm-hmm. And you take snapshots mm-hmm. for each frame that you need, correct? Right, right. How do you know how your image is going to be for each frame? Um, well, the camera is actually connected to a computer over here, and I'm using a software, a piece of software called DragonFrame, which is um, a frame capture program. And so, that the window on the computer actually shows me the live view of what the camera's seeing. So I don't actually have to look through the camera; I can just look through the frame as it appears on the computer, and I can be assured of what's gonna show up in the frame and how it's going to look. Now, you were telling me about another technique that you have done a lot of animation with, which is actually animating onto the cells of captured video. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. You were were explaining this this particular technique to me versus this one that you're currently doing right in front of me. Oh, um, well, for this project, Mm -hmm. um, and I've done this for um, other recent projects too, I'm doing something, I'm, I'm using a technique called rotoscoping. Okay, that's it. I yeah. Um, and what rotoscoping is in traditional um, filmmaking and animation is when you take a piece of live action film, so just like a regular clip of somebody, say, walking, and um, 
live action just means not animated, just sure. like like if I took ad. a video camera and I filmed mm-hmm. a gentleman walking across the street. Exactly. Um, so you take a clip like that, and then um, either by printing out each frame of that video, and then taking tracing paper and tracing on top of it, or by using a computer and breaking that clip out into individual frames, because as you probably know, film and video um, images, we see motion um, because we think we're seeing something moving. It's not actually, the image is not actually moving though, it's made up of a series of many still frames. Right. And because of this phenomenon called persistence of vision, which is what allows your your eye to blend frames, you perceive something as moving. Um, so you take each of these individual frames and you um, trace over them and then you fo- and that's how you animate it you photograph your tracings right and so by doing that um, in a weird way it sounds like a, a way of cheating um, and it's not really because as the person doing the the tracing you're still it's amazing how many decisions you're still making when it comes down to where are you going to draw that line? How are you going to trace that? What are you going to include? What are you not going to include? And so what I'm doing is I'm using um, live action clips, video clips uh, taken from uh, things I've seen online, very particular things. In this case, uh, weather balloons and um, dash cam footage of a falling meteorite. And I'm using that as a reference on the computer. And I'm able to sort of put it on the computer so that it's partially see-through. Right. And um, so I can partially see that. And then I can also partially see what I'm actually drawing. So I'm kind of layering it by looking at the computer. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. (laughs) It's a weird kind of hand-eye coordination because usually when you draw something... You look at the thing that you're drawing. Right. But I can't do that with this. I have to have my hand on the drawing with the eraser or with the graphite, but my eyes have to be on the computer perpendicular screen. to that, looking at the computer screen as I'm as I'm erasing. But or as drawing. you look at the computer screen, yeah. we can see your hand in the frame because mm-hmm. it's connected to the SLR camera that's above us. That's right. And so you're kind of in a way following your hand on the screen to figure out and erasing the graphite. Yeah. And you're watching your hand on the screen as That's you erase right. the graphite. And so my brain, the... yeah, my brain is trying to control the thing I'm seeing on the screen, like my hand, which sure. is kind of trippy, um, but also kind of fun because uh, I guess it appeals to the um, the old performance artist in me. Okay. <laughs> in a way, this is part of why I like doing this is that it is sort of a performance I'm performing a drawing, essentially. So it is um, like, kind of like a dance. And what's nice is like you have you have a little soft brush that you brush away the erasings, and it kind of gives this sort of I don't know cleansing of the field that you're working on each time. You're kind of like just cleansing the vellum and and taking everything away and taking the the still shot. So it has a very sort of a ceremonial feel to it, if you will. Oh, there's the little thing. Sorry. No, it's all right. Um, uh, it's, it's neat yeah, because we're... It's ritualistic. It, that's what yeah. I was trying to say. That's it great. Reminds it reminds me of... Um, like it's not It's not quite the same as those um, mandalas right. made out of sand that are so carefully made and then are destroyed. That's what I was thinking of when you said Caroline, Caroline Leaf's work. Yeah, yeah. 
like because she uses sand. I yeah. was thinking of a Mandela and. Uh, well, and yeah, and that's, and I think there is something about um, that that really appeals to me because every time you manipulate a drawing or you take a frame when you work this way, or when you work the way she did. Um, you really have to commit to that. There's no backsies. Right. You can't, if you screwed up a shot, too bad. Right. You can't just pull out that drawing and re-photograph it. Sure. It's gone. It's the drawing gone. does not exist right. anymore. Has that happened to you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why you do lots of tests and stuff before. Sure. Um, or you just, you know, figure out a workaround to make it okay. Right. But um, I kind of like that... Um, you know, the, it's a bit of a tightrope walk and you definitely don't have a net. It's like, here you go. It's, and I guess to me that's part of what makes it a performance. You know, sure. you, you commit to the thing you're performing in that moment. And what was your inspiration? I know it's, it's not an easy thing for an artist to, to sort of explain what inspires them, but with this particular piece you have uh, footage of a meteorite crashing and weather balloons. Mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you get there? Uh, um... Well, as we delve into the mind of, <laughs> of the artist, here we go. Uh, yeah, I guess um, I have some recent work, recent uh, one one sort of recent thread of my practice as an artist, as a visual artist, uh, has been around um, thinking about the ways we use different kinds of media. Um, to see the world around us um, or to what we're using these things for. Is it because we want information? Is it because it's entertainment? Um, and I'm super fascinated by um, pop culture and the globalization of pop culture. Um, and I'm speaking like very self-consciously as somebody who is a Westerner, who is from um, you know a country that or a part of the world that um, considers itself to be, you know, kind of a dominator in terms of uh, global pop culture phenomena. But what's interesting was living in Korea for a number of years, um, pop culture in Korea, um, the government there was, was very uh, self-consciously trying, trying to uh, export, always trying to export the pop culture, Korean pop culture. Um, Anyway, how does this figure into my work? So I guess I just, I, I try to think about how um, these these things that I see online and these different sort of phenomena. And um, an earlier work that I did in 2006, so that's 10 years old now, but um, where I kind of started picking at this fascination, um, was I was trying to capture that feeling of being, t what it's like when you're in a movie theater, um, that idea of being together alone. And because uh, at the time, you know, just past Y2K, it was like, oh, everybody's going to watch, everybody's going to watch television online in the future. Nobody's going to get together to watch things. Um, it's, uh, everything's going to be very individualized, very tailored to specific audience needs. So I guess the ultimate question I was interested in was what constitutes an audience? And um, does it matter if people are together or are apart when they witness something? And so one of the things I've always liked about going to the movies is you're there in a dark room with a lot of people you don't know. And interestingly, you're probably all having similar reactions to things you're seeing on the screen. And there's something very 
comforting in that. Sure. You know, so um, for this, I'm, this is a very long answer, but um, so for this project, um, so fast forward 10 years to now, with this particular project, um, I was looking at, I'm looking at the phenomenon of um, sort of um, amateur weather balloon, um, weather balloon GoPro culture. Um, You know, you always hear about these university classes or this group of students or these people that decide they're going to put up a weather balloon and send it off into space. And because GoPro cameras, these little, very tiny, very lightweight, but very powerful cameras that always have like a a sort of fisheye lens on them. And they're very durable cameras too. They can go underwater. They can go anywhere. Um, you see tons of videos online that people took with their GoPros now, right? Right. So these people will send up weather balloons into the atmosphere um, and attach a GoPro to it, and they'll record. The GoPro will record everything, the balloon going up, 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 to the, at some point, inevitably, the balloon pops, and then it falls back to the earth. And at the same time, in, in Russia, and this is a phenomenon that's quite particular to Russia, it seems. I love that um, we go from Canada to Korea to Russia in this right. episode, but please continue. Right. So. And the weather balloons, by the way, most of the weather balloon footage I found is from the, the U.S., although there are some European sources and there's one Japanese source that's slightly more global-ish okay. um, in the so-called sort of develop, developed world, I guess. Um, but the, uh, the Russian phenomenon uh, is having... Dash cam, a dash cam in your car. Right. Right? Almost every, uh, well, I don't know this for a fact, but a lot of drivers, it seems, have these little cameras mounted on the dashboards of their car that just face outward and record footage of whatever's happening in front of the driver. And you see these incredible, crazy video clips online of car crashes. Um, Apparently, there's some very gruesome ones online uh, because there are lots and lots of car accidents in Russia. Um, but the reason why a lot of people gravitated towards putting a dash cam in their car is because um, the police are so corrupt right. or there'll be people trying to do insurance scams. That's what I had heard. Yeah. Right. right. So, they, they'll, so they'll pretending kind of... to get hit by the car, but the cameras recorded that, in fact, they're fine. Right. So uh, a lot of people get them for protection. Sure. Um, so what fascinated me about these two phenomena is that um, we always, when we think of cameras and we think of recording or we think of making movies or whatever, video, um, at least to me, we always think about the eye and how we choose to put what we, what we put in the frame, right? How are you going to take that shot? Are, are you, and with amateur home movie footage, it's often very wandery footage sure. and, um, you don't, you know, the person shooting often really doesn't have a solid concept of what they're shooting before they shoot it. So in a way, it's kind of stream of consciousness. And I've played with that in previous work, too. Um, I actually really like using really crappy amateur footage, often stuff that I take. Um, I just had a show a couple weeks ago, actually, as part of the Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival um, that involved a lot of uh, home movie-type footage and sort of playing with the weird blurred frames or the, the sort of wandering aspect of what the person behind the camera is doing as they're searching for something in the frame. Like, what is it I'm actually shooting here? Oh, my kid just walked that way. I'm going to follow my kid. Right. right? Um, so 
that's in stark contrast to this because with a weather balloon there's no human behind the camera it's just on its own right and with the dash cam there's somebody driving the car yes but they're not manipulating the camera the, yeah right. they're not looking through the lens the camera picks up what it picks up where you've mounted it yeah and so just that idea that there isn't a human behind the lens or a human eye behind the lens choosing the frames was something I really wanted to play with. And so um, by taking that footage as reference and then kind of tracing with my graphite powder each of those frames onto a piece of paper, I'm trying to reintroduce the hand or something that's handmade or something that involves, you know, human <laughs> construction, I guess. Um, and I just think they make for really interesting images. And the thing that I find an interesting contrast between those two sources of footage, the dash cam versus the weather balloon, when you look at the weather balloon footage, the horizon is always flipping around on you and changing because right, the camera's just twirling and twirling. Um, and I love that. And the dash cam footage, the horizon is always the same because it's always from that car point of view. Right. And so I thought that would provide a really interesting contrast. So. This piece is actually an installation made up of several different clips. So I'm not actually going to turn this into one film that goes from start to finish. It'll right. just be a series of clips, very much the same as what I took from online, only it's all going to be rendered in hand-manipulated graphite powder. There you go. Well, I know you have about 3,000 frames you have to animate, <laughs> so we won't take any more of your time, and please feel free to erase and use what you need to do. Um, Thank you so much for allowing us this sort of bird's ear view <laughs> of what you're doing for the frame is the key frame. It's quite uh, the diatribe I went on, I, eh? I, I think it was great. I mean, <laughs> listen, we had an animated discussion about animation is what I'm going to put on the, <laughs> on the uh, I want to say liner notes, but on the notes on the podcast. Oh, I hope it was boring enough that people can fall asleep. Oh, you know what? I'm sure, it, whether it was boring enough, I'm sure people were relaxing as they listened. Oh, good. I had the pleasure of having Becca Barker. Uh, stay tuned, because we're going to do part two of the Sea Slugs, Nudebronk episode that we promised that we taped in Florida. So, That's Becca, right. I hope you're okay to do that in the upcoming future. Oh, for sure, for here. sure. So, um, we want to thank the Toronto Animated Image Society for this exhibition and we are recording from the Toronto Animated Image Society taste uh, building I guess you would say yeah here in Toronto. yeah they're one of the inhabitants of this building here on Dufferin Street and you've mentioned the NFB mm -hmm. with regards to Caroline Leaf's work and I just want to let our listeners who aren't familiar with the NFB know that it stands for the National Film Board of Canada oh that's right yes Becca thank you so much Good it's luck. been a pleasure thank you Marco and uh, all the best with your art. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to The Insomnia Project, as always, produced by Drumcast Production. And this episode was recorded in Toronto.